I'm America's Digital Pro, Kim Commando. And hey, did you know something? October is Cybersecurity Awareness Month. That's right. So I wanted to use this episode of Commando on Demand to introduce you to a good friend of mine. He's a renowned attorney, too. His name is Stephen Tepler. He hosts a really great podcast called Cyber Law Now. Cybersecurity and privacy is so important that I wanted to share a recent episode of Cyber Law. And this is the one where Stephen Tepler talks to a retired FBI special agent, a guy by the name of Lawrence Wolfenden. They're going to talk about his inside experiences with electronic privacy issues during his whole career, as well as what the government can and cannot do when it comes to protecting our privacy. I'm telling you, this is a great podcast. You're going to love every minute of it. It's packed with such useful information and stories. I just didn't want you to miss it. And right now, a quick thank you to our partners who help make this podcast possible. Online privacy. Is there really such a thing in today's everything goes and everything gets posted digital world? Is privacy bad or good? And for who? When did we even start being concerned with privacy? What laws protect our privacy or take it away? What about our children? What if I tell you that the last federal law protecting people from cyber intrusion was passed in the 1980s, before there was even an internet, or that the only federal child protection law is now 20 years old and hasn't been updated, or that our computerized election systems are at risk, and that most of the laws passed since protect companies and not individuals, or that companies want to keep you from suing them in court if they're responsible for privacy invasions or cybercrime? Sounds paranoid, doesn't it? Want to learn more about cyber protection laws and how they affect you, our nation, and your family? Join me, Stephen Tepler, on the Cyber Law Now podcast, where I'll be joined by retired FBI Special Agent Lawrence Wolfenden of the Silent Group in Sarasota, Florida. Malicious software. Howard, the robots are coming. They say we are not prepared. Spying, snooping. It's scary. Hi, I'm attorney Stephen Tepler, and welcome to the Cyber Law Now podcast. I chair the cybersecurity and privacy practice at the Mandelbaum Salzburg Law Firm. Here at Cyber Law Now, we discuss today's cybersecurity, look at the legal issues around them, and make you aware of them, how they affect you, and what you can do to protect yourself. We are absolutely thrilled to have as today's guest, retired FBI Special Agent Lawrence Wolfenden, who is a privacy and cybersecurity and cyber forensics expert at the Silent Group in Sarasota, Florida. Lawrence, welcome, and tell us a little bit about what you do. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, yeah, so I am <clears throat> was hired as a senior forensics uh, examiner uh, with Silent Group. I had been with the FBI as a special agent for 25 years uh, when I retired in uh, January of 2017 and had worked as a white-collar crime investigator is where I started out, uh, moved into doing digital forensics, was one of the uh, FBI's uh, certified um, forensic examiners uh, in their computer analysis and response team. Uh, helped develop the uh, standard operating procedures that we had for the field examiners. Uh, it worked uh, on a lot of uh, uh, Linux-type uh, cases, um, Linux uh, forensics, Linux-based forensics, and 
eventually moved into working on cyber fraud, uh, internet fraud, and cyber intrusions, uh, which uh, when I started was um, focused mainly on criminal intrusions, but then eventually moved on to doing uh, national security type intrusions. Uh, so when I uh, retired in uh, 2017, uh, I had known the folks at Silent for quite some time, probably about 10 years at that point, uh, having had work with them uh, on some different intrusion cases. And uh, they uh, were able to, to bring me on board to, uh, to some respect, do the same thing I had done before, um, digital forensics and uh, investigations of, uh, of network intrusions. That's incredible, Lawrence. I'm sure that your 25 years of experience has exposed you to a variety of situations, and I guess some of them you can't talk about. But to the extent you do, what was possibly the most interesting privacy issue that you had seen during your, uh, during your tenure at the FBI? One, I guess I would have to say, uh, was one that kind of hit home. Uh, and that is the OPM intrusion. Uh, so I was part of the FBI's CAT team, which is their cyber action team. I was part of the CAT team, the cyber action team, which essentially is sort of a, uh, a fly team of agents uh, out in the field, uh, one or two from each office, and uh, were the guys who were identified as uh, being particularly adept at working uh, intrusion investigations so that whenever there was a problem uh, that needed um, you know, a high level of expertise, maybe needed extra manpower thrown at it, uh, they could draw upon those folks in the field. We had worked together on cases in the past, uh, could get out to where a problem might be occurring and, um, and begin investigating it. So the Office of Professional Management um, in 2015 uh, had been uh, suffered an intrusion, uh, apparently by foreign actors, and the CAT team was called to come out and assist in, in responding and trying to identify who it was that had come in, uh, how far into the network they had gotten, what they had stolen. Um, whether or not they were still there, how we could get them out, uh, and maybe to be able to identify uh, you know, precisely who it was uh, and, and decide on what kind of response should be uh, brought, it, brought to bear. And uh, the, the, the nature of the, that work was basically they brought in the, uh, the CAT team to work for uh, about a two-week period. Uh, at which point, uh, given the, the, the number of days you're working and the number of hours that you're working per day, uh, you tended to get burned out, and we would then cycle in new uh, people to come in and work, uh, let us get back to work in our own cases back in our own office. So uh, during that initial response, uh, we were trying to identify who it was that had gotten in there, uh, how they had gotten in there, but the privacy aspect of it was that one of the things that we were able to determine that it appeared that they were targeting uh, at the OPM was the uh, background information, the personnel files of uh, U.S. government workers, including uh, every FBI agent. So this was uh, something that 
uh, where one of the few times I worked where I was uh, not only uh, an investigator, but also potentially uh, a victim. And uh, the the issue was is that these were our, uh, this, this was included the data that was the basis for the background investigations that are used to determine whether or not agents could uh, receive a security clearance and what level of security clearance. Uh, so when you're preparing to do your background investigation, you provide information, you know, the, 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 the basic stuff, your name, your date of birth, your social security number, uh, but also every place you've ever lived. Um, you provide information about, you know, anybody that you've ever had a relationship with for more than, uh, lived with uh, for more than uh, 30 days. So roommates, um, you know, your, your wife, uh, spouse, your children, you provide information about uh, relatives, immediate family relatives, uh, and their spouses, um, just pretty much everything under the sun so that uh, – a determination could be made whether or not you were going to be able to receive a, a top secret uh, security clearance. So all that information was right there, uh, housed in the um, housed in databases that were at the uh, within the OPM's network, and it had been uh, apparently exfiltrated out to a foreign country, um, basically a, a gold mine of uh, for, for any foreign intelligence service to to mine. How many people were uh, had their information exposed through the OPM data breach? That's a good, I don't know the the precise number. the The statement generally was anybody who had applied for a security clearance uh, with the U.S. government. Um, I I don't know what the time limit was, whether it was ten years, fifteen years, or twenty years. Um, but it, it was uh, it was it was devastating loss. There are um, there are reports that there are as many as tens of millions of uh, identities compromised, and these include all kinds of federal employees, not just FBI agents, but um, undercover agents, other types of confidential informants, uh, the types of personal information that if disclosed could actually endanger somebody's life. So we're, uh, we're now at the, at the pivot and looking at privacy and how privacy has affected us in our everyday lives. So we all hear about privacy issues in our personal information and certainly your personal information uh, that, was com- that might have been compromised as a result of the OPM data breach. Um, what, are, what are your existing concerns today? about personal privacy and the information that we all um, keep on gathering and increasing on the internet online through various platforms and computers and applications and, uh, and chat groups, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it's, that's, that's kind of interesting because as I um, conduct investigations and, and also just as I live my life, um, you know, trying to educate uh, my wife and, and my children uh, about how they need to be careful and, and you know, also personally want to be careful about uh, sharing my own information out. Um, it is astounding how freely and how widespread we give up information that normally would be 
considered very private. Uh, you know, Facebook is is a wonderful example. I mean, people are putting incredible um, amount of detail regarding their life, regarding who their friends and associates are, what they do on a day-to-day basis into platforms like like Facebook. Uh, and they're, they're by no means the, the only one. There's uh, uh, Tumblr and Imgur and, and Instagram. Uh, people, you know, sometimes they're more well-known uh, for their digital life than their personal life. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting to think about you know, folks who, you know, have, according to some of these uh, platforms, you know, they have you know, 10,000 friends or, or 100,000 friends. Uh, I, I think that's kind of interesting because I, I really can probably name only about 50 people that I would consider, quote, friends. Uh, a, a lot of acquaintances, but, um, you know, I, they're not all my friends, and I wouldn't share the same level of detail regarding my personal life with everybody I've uh, ever come in contact with. Uh, but but over as a society, we seem to be doing that more and more, and it's in ways that we see, so like the social media platforms where uh, we are cognizant and um, deliberately taking pictures and posting them. Um, maybe sometimes it's a little more indirect uh, from the standpoint that I didn't take and post something, but my friends that I'm with, uh, you know, we're out at a restaurant and they take some pictures and post them on their Facebook account. You know, so now all of a sudden I'm up on there, even though I didn't really necessarily want to be. Um, uh, you couple that with some of the facial recognition technologies uh, where it could be the people at the table next to me took a picture um, and posted it up and now all of a sudden my face is uh, is recognized um, and, and ma- marked and tagged on uh, some of the social platforms. But, but then you look at uh, some things that people don't necessarily always think about. A lot of us take advantage of uh, Google's Gmail. Uh, service or Yahoo's uh, mail service or AOL. There are a lot of free email services, and um, many of them are scanning the emails uh, that they uh, then sell the data uh, to business partners so that you can receive targeted ads. Uh, Google was doing that up until uh, last year, 2017. They decided to back off of that and no longer uh, scan your emails and, and sell that data to, to, to partners for advertising purposes. Um, when I was reading about that, I, I did note that it didn't necessarily say that they weren't scanning it and using it for other purposes. Maybe it's not for targeted ads anymore, but there are other um, there, there's other value in the data about what it is that we talk about, who it is we talk to, the places we go, the things we want to be. Marketing is a is a huge business, and getting a marketing message to a particular person, there's a huge financial incentive to do that. Uh, let's let's face it, it's marketing and advertising. It was the engine uh, that that financed um, television, and think about how how large that industry is. And it was all based on the fact that people wanted to get um, a marketing message, uh, an advertising message to potential customers. And 
back then with TV, you didn't have the ability to target to the very specific people because uh, it, was, it was just broadcast to everybody. And today, Google is that model on steroids. Okay, when we come back, Stephen will continue his conversation with retired special agent Lawrence Wolfenden about online privacy and what it means to you. But first, a word from one of our podcast partners, Quip. I'm going to bet that you're just like me. You've had parents and teachers and dentists telling you how to brush your teeth your entire life. And each person has a different technique. But the one thing they can agree on is that you have to brush your teeth for a full two minutes. So that's why I love Quip. Quip is electric. It's small. It's light. It's sleek. There's a built-in two-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you to switch sides. That's right. And with Quip, new brush heads are delivered automatically, just like dentists recommend, every three months, and it's inexpensive, just $5. Try Quip and see why it's backed by more than 20,000 dental professionals. Quip starts at just $25. That's it. Here's the web address, getquip.com slash tech. And when you go there, your first refill pack is free at getquip.com slash tech. That's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash tech. Welcome back to the Cyber Law Now podcast. I'm attorney Stephen Tepler, and I am really excited to have retired FBI Special Agent Lawrence Wolfenden of the Silent Group here on the podcast. We're talking about privacy in the law and how it affects your everyday digital life. We were talking about Google and how uh, it had been scanning your emails for certain purposes, but uh, maybe they're still scanning emails for other purposes and the marketing of these uh, of these emails and anything that you place on the internet or, or use that they can capture becomes fodder to send to someone who may find value in it. That That's a privacy issue, I think. And there's really no law that says you can't do that. There's no general privacy law in the United States. You know, in privacy, let's look at what privacy really is. Privacy at its core means that a person has control over his or her personal data. And control means that a person can claim uh, control over the collection, the use, and the sharing of their data. And by sharing these days, we mean the sale of their data. When you buy that TV or you buy that refrigerator that's connected, that oven that's connected, that oven is sending information about what you're doing, how you cook, when you cook, and that information is useful and valuable to somebody. So bring this back to our conversation, Lawrence. Do we really have any privacy? <laughs> I, I would contend it's very difficult uh, to maintain privacy. Uh, like I said, um, most of us, uh, or probably most of us, make use of some of these free email services, uh, and those uh, have the capability of being scanned. Um, if you look through the terms of service, uh, you may actually, by connecting various apps and services uh, to uh, your, your free email, you may actually be allowing some third party to go through and look at and mine the data that's inside of your emails. Uh, in fact, I was reading one article where they said that, uh, in, that when you look at the actual details of what may be happening, it's not even necessarily just some computer program that's scanning for keywords or uh, pulling, pulling things out like that, but actual individual human beings sitting down and reading through 
the emails that you've made available to them. Uh, you have no idea who these people are. Um, you have no idea what they're, why they're looking at it, what they're reading, um, and what they may be doing with it. But you've given them permission to do it because you clicked through a, uh, you know, a 30-page term of service, uh, terms of service agreement, in order to connect this up. So they've asked for your permission and you've given it. I'm just not so sure that you've actually given it um, knowingly. I mean, you've knowingly given it up, but you don't know exactly the extent of what you've given up. You're bringing up an issue that I've been thinking about during our conversation, and that is the most of this data slurping is being done by private companies, you know, Facebook, Apple, Google, whatever. Uh, you know, there's also a, uh, an undercurrent of opinion in people who think that the government is reading everything and looking at everything and looking at emails and scanning for, you know, for whatever it is that they think they're scanning for. I personally think that my life is not that important, that the government really doesn't care unless I don't pay my taxes. And then they're not going to scan for my emails. They're going to come knocking at my door. But my question to you, sir, is, um, and, and it's kind of a loaded question, and that is, does the FBI, did the FBI ever just wantonly or randomly decide that they want to look at somebody's emails and hack into their computers? No, no. Um, yeah. I, I did often get those those kinds of questions of uh, people that were concerned that uh, you know the FBI um, is reading every email or scanning every email or the listening to phone calls uh, on a wholesale basis. Uh, and you know, it having been inside of the bureau, um, it was very readily apparent that, we quite frankly just don't have the manpower to uh, to do something like that. And and I explained it to I often explained it by saying, listen, there's about ten thousand to thirteen thousand FBI agents. When I started, it was about ten thousand. Now it's about thirteen thousand actual agents in the FBI. There's three hundred thirty million people in the in the U.S. Uh, if you do the math, it's just not conceivable that we can keep tabs on everybody in this country, um, not without saying, okay, well, I can spend 10 seconds considering each person every other month. And then maybe, yeah, you, you could, but you, that's not any, that's, that's not meaningful. And it's, you know, I hate to use the word ludicrous, but it's, it's just not, uh, not possible. Um, but, but the other thing is, is that we're um, precluded from looking at things on a wholesale basis. I mean, uh, the, the constitution, uh, makes it very clear that in order for us to look into the private effects uh, of an individual, whether that be by stopping them on the street and, and patting them down and, and pulling things out of their pocket and reading uh, notes that might be in their wallet or in their briefcase uh, or going into their house. But that also has been extended to uh, apply to their, their emails and their online, their digital records. Uh, obtaining those things uh, requires, at the least, it requires a uh, grand jury subpoena. Um, and in many, many cases, to get to something that is meaningful and, and useful in a criminal investigation or a national security investigation, it, it actually requires either a search warrant for criminal investigations 
or a, a FISA warrant uh, for um, national security investigations. And those take, uh, number one, time uh, to produce. You have to put a lot of documentary uh, evidence and support uh, behind uh, asking for those things. And the application then goes to a third-party arbitrator, um, so a judge. A, in criminal court, it's a – or in the criminal side, it's a, uh, a, a United States magistrate uh, in most cases. Sometimes it's a United States judge. In others, it, it, or in the FISA side, it is a judge on the FISA court. So it's a, a third-party independent arbiter. Granted, they are a judge. They are a member of the U.S. government. But they are independent of the executive branch. They're independent of the FBI, the Department of Justice. And I've had warrants uh, get turned down. Um, the, the judges are by no means a rubber stamp. Uh, and and the more the more intrusive the request, uh, the more scrutiny uh, they provide to it. So, for example, if I wanted a um, if I if I just want to know information about your internet service. So I want to know who it is you have internet service for and how long you've had it. Um, I can get that with a grand jury subpoena. If I want to know about the um, emails that you've been sending, I'm going to have to get a search warrant. There are some, uh, there, there, there are some ways that I can obtain old emails, but in general, I'm going to have to, without getting a warrant, but in general, I'm going to have to get a search warrant uh, to, to get your emails, which means I have to explain what it is you did that I think is a criminal violation, when you did it, and how your emails relate to it. And I've got to make a showing to a judge that there's probable cause, that it's more likely than not that the evidence is actually in your emails. And then if I want to go one step further, and uh, actually read your emails or your chat communications real time as you're having them, uh, then I have to actually get a Title III warrant, which is a, that's a, a significant hurdle to overcome. You have to provide a lot of data. You generally have to get a search warrant before you can get a Title III warrant. You have to make a showing that the information is current and is still ongoing. And then you have to make reports to the judge every 10 days about what it is you're collecting. Um, it's a very difficult process. And if every agent in the FBI had a Title III that they were supervising and collecting information on, the FBI would not be doing anything else at all except working on those. Okay, it's super interesting to see what the government can access in regards to our online information, isn't it? We're going to get right back to the conversation with Stephen and Lawrence after we hear from some of the good companies who help make this podcast possible. Welcome back to Cyber Law Now. In the past segment, you've heard about what the FBI can and can't do. And contrary to a lot of what we're hearing today, the FBI has to obey the law. And it has to get subpoenas to get information. There are um, varying levels of uh, requirements and what I guess we would call probable cause or good cause for any kind of subpoena or warrant or arrest that might be made in connection with, with digital information. 
and and we'll talk about cell towers and perhaps uh, the FISA court at another time. But um, Lawrence is teaching us that it this is not a walk into court and just like you see on TV, they give it a rubber stamp and there you go, let's capture the computer. There has to be a reason. There has to be a, a reasonable suspicion of some sort of criminal activity. Um, Lawrence, um, we're, we're coming close to the end of our podcast and I do hope that you'll come back for another uh, follow-up on this because, boy, I, I have a ton of questions for you and I'm a lawyer um, and we can go over some of the constitutional issues and some of the uh, recent events that um, have raised eyebrows in terms of how information is disclosed or not disclosed, both on the government side as well as on the private side. But um, talk a little bit uh, about uh, getting a FISA warrant. That's the um, Tell us a little bit about the FISA court, perhaps, if you can. Sure. So, um, and I'll have to uh, preface this by saying that that I have not myself obtained a FISA warrant. Uh, I have worked with uh, national security letters, which are the uh, foreign counterintelligence um, equivalent uh, analogy to a grand jury subpoena. Um, So a, a lower threshold to obtain those. Uh, but at the same time, you get a lesser level of information from those. Uh, but but basically, the the from watching other people and, and assisting other agents in obtaining uh, FISA warrants and, and building those up, in order to get a search warrant, uh, you have to prepare an affidavit in which you lay forth uh, your background, uh, the facts of the case, and explain how it is that the information which you seek is in fact in the place where you want to search and how it does in fact relate to the crime being described. And Lawrence, so let me the- point out as a lawyer that when you when you file an affidavit or fill out an affidavit, you're making a sworn statement to a federal court. And if you lie to that federal court, the consequences can be grave. And if you're, I guess, an FBI special agent, uh, you can be disciplined and perhaps even suspended or worse. Am I correct? You you are correct. Uh, Disciplined at the least if you if you make a mistake and, and, you know, uh, mislead the court um, or um, or felt that you uh, didn't make it clear what was going uh, what was going on. You know, if you try to uh, be disingenuous with the court, that's going to come back to bite you um, professionally, uh, potentially to the point where you may not be in a position to uh, ever testify anymore, which uh, pretty much cuts off um, being able to work on any kind of criminal investigation. Kind of cuts your career in half, doesn't it? It pretty much cuts your career in half. Um, and uh, if it's um, you know, there is also all the way to the potential of being prosecuted if you make a deliberate false statement uh, to the court. Uh, so, yeah, the, the the sanctions and the penalties can be can be quite severe. You can see your you can see your career end, and and you could actually potentially even go to jail, um, just like anybody else uh, who lies to the court uh, can can uh, wind up being in jail. So, you know, if you uh, with with the search warrant, you put all the information into your affidavit and uh, present it to the judge. With the FISA warrant, it is very similar, except that 
it goes through such a level of scrutiny within the FBI before it even gets over to the Department of Justice, who scrutinizes it, before it ever goes to the FISA court, where a judge is going to have the opportunity to scrutinize it and render his own decision as an independent third party, that the requirement is that every sentence, every fact that you put into your FISA warrant has to be backed up by some sort of documentary, documented evidence that's in the file. So um, whereas I can, to some extent, rely on memory and reports and summations of reports, uh, put it into an affidavit, and um, it's my own professionalism that is on the line. Uh, With the FISA warrant, it goes that next step of I have to be able for every single line in my affidavit to be able to point to a particular document that is saved. It can't be just something in my memory. It can't be something I surmised. I have to actually go back and see where it is in the file. Um, and those, that process and the reviews to make that happen are long and arduous and, you know, quite frankly, are um, a disincentive to get a FISA warrant because it's so difficult. So here's here's um, here's my takeaway on this. My takeaway, and you're reinforcing, at least from my perspective, um, a belief that or the belief that the government pretty much does a better job at trying to protect information than than big business does, or when or than you know the big tech companies might. Um, we've been to law school in law enforcement school today with FBI Special Agent Lawrence Wolfenden of the Silent Group. We've learned that while the United States doesn't have explicit privacy statutes for Americans, although hopefully when Lawrence returns in, in our subsequent segment and podcast, we can learn more. There are legal protections that can help make sure that you, your family and, and the people who you love are, are safe from bad actors and, and cyber criminals. So I want to thank you so much, Lawrence, for joining us today. I hope to have you back for that next segment on Cyber Law Now podcasts. And thank you, our listeners, for your interest in going to law school. Don't forget to hit subscribe and get all of your podcasts while you sleep. Share them with your friends even. If you have a cyber law subject you want to hear more about, contact us. And this is attorney Stephen Tepler. Stephen Tepler.